All right. We're in the book of Philippians. And uh, we're in chapter 3. And today we're going to learn, well, the, the title of today's sermon is How to Think About Knowing God, Part 1. How to Think About Knowing God, Part 1. Which means next week, you already know the title of next week's sermon. Unless I switch it up on you. But How to Think About Knowing God. Let's pray. Father, we ask, again, you would just teach us in this time your word. We don't come presumptively. We don't come just expecting you. We want to ask that you would speak to our hearts. I pray you would soften our hearts, and I pray that uh, there would be power in this room that is different than anything we've ever known or experienced. The great love of God and, and your Holy Spirit poured on us, just like the day of Pentecost when Lord, you filled people like never before. In your name we pray. Amen. Do you guys know Arnold Schwarzenegger? Oh, wow. So much information there. Some, some people know him personally. I don't know him personally. Um, it, does anyone know anyone famous? Who's the most? You know someone famous? Who? The two guys from Lit. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, that's cool. That's are they, you got if they if you walked into their house, they would say, "Rich, they know you." All right, all right. Anyone else know anyone famous? Because I was kind of low on the totem pole. Yes. Oh, Joe King from the Phrase. Is he the bass player? Oh, okay. I know their bass player. I've met him. He doesn't know me. I don't know him, but I know him. But you actually know him? You guys tight? You good friends? But he would know you if you walked in a room? Ah, okay. Good deal. All right, who else knows someone famous? Minus 10 Bible points for you. Anyone else know someone famous? I'm looking for something good here. Politician, a criminal. Any, BK? You met David Diaz Infante. Oh, Broncos. Okay. He played for the Broncos. He was offensive lineman. That's like really low. I mean, if it was like a running back or like a quarterback. Yes. Huh? All right. I trust you. Kurt, you know KRS-One? Oh, Kurt knows. I don't know who KRS-One is. Who do you know, Sandra? We used to know the chief of police. The chief of police. So famous, he doesn't even have a name. <laughs> All right, chief. With... Okay. All right. What, what do you got, Beth? I know you know Robert Redford. No. <laughs> That's a long story, and you have to ask her about it, but okay. <laughs> Bob Hope said he was your... Okay, you guys win. That, I love Bob Hope. All right. Okay. Bob Hope wins. That's well done. Well done. I, I love it. He's the funniest guy. Oh, my gosh. He's funny. Okay. Knowing someone is, is really an interesting thing because we can know who people are. All those people, like we knew. I, I mentioned Arnold Schwarzenegger, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump. We know who these people are, but none of us know them because... In English, we have one word for two different things. 
knowing who someone is, and then being intimately acquainted with that person or knowing them experientially. And uh, in, Gre- in Greek, they have those two different words. And, and so my question is, do you know God the way you're supposed to? Not just know about God and not just have some good guesses ab- about who he is or what he does, and not just what you've heard about him or seen in movies, but do you know God personally? If you were to walk into a dark alley and bump into Jesus, would you recognize him by his behavior and personality? Deism, theism, and Islam all are views of God that put him beyond our ability as human beings to know. They all say that you cannot know him in a personal, meaningful way. However, the Bible presents us with a view of God that he can actually be known and his actual desires can be known and understood. We can know his personality, his will, what he likes, what he doesn't like, and most of all, how he feels and how he thinks. That's part of what the Bible reveals to us. So knowing God is the highest priority in life, according to the word of God. It's the core of the word of God. Two words, knowing God, knowing God. It's our reason for living. We'll find out it's the way we're supposed to live. It's the only measure for success in living according to the word of God. It's the only source of help. It's the only hope for the future. The only way we could possibly understand our trials and our hardships is by knowing God. It must be our priority. When it's the priority... Everything else in your life just seems to fall into place. And if it's not the priority, it will just seem like everything else is falling apart. Isn't that interesting how it works? So we are going to look at some real, authentic marks of knowing the Lord. And so you're going to kind of test yourself this morning. You're going to allow the Spirit to search your heart and to see, do you really know the Lord? So we start in Philippians verses 2 and 3. Now, we covered some of these verses last week, but we're going back at it with this new viewpoint this week. And so if you're a little confused, that's okay. Go back and listen to last week. uh, That's the legalistic part of it. This week, we're talking about the knowing God part of it. So chapter 3, verse 2 of Philippians. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, and beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. So we learned last week that these dogs were legalistic troublemakers. And legalism was people who, who pretend to be really spiritual. In other words, they know what the right thing to do is, but it's not really in their heart. They're pretending, they're faking it. They want to be truly spiritual, but they're not. And they imitate it by putting rules in their life. And they say, well, if I don't do these things, then God will accept me. Or other people will think that I'm truly spiritual if I don't drink or don't cuss, or maybe I just won't care about any of them. Dogs are these legalistic troublemakers. We saw evil workers those who don't understand the role of works in the economy of God's kingdom. 
religious leaders who teach you that you can increase your righteousness by your own self-sourced efforts. We're going to come back to this in a little bit. And then mutilation we saw. They're not the real deal on the inside. So all these three descriptions were of legalistic people or people that are faking it. They're the hypocrites that go to church that don't live it. These are not the real deal Christians, followers of Jesus. They come to church and they're checking it out, but they are not controlled by the Holy Spirit. They're not surrendered to the Holy Spirit. But we, Paul says, are the real deal. He's writing a letter to real believers, and I'm speaking to you guys because my hope is that you're the real deal. And if you're not, you have an opportunity to become the real deal today, right now as we speak. It's awesome. So we are, it says, he says, we are the true circumcision made without hands or human efforts. What that means is that nobody told you to change. When Jesus comes and and comes into your heart and you accept him by faith, nobody tells you what to do. Jesus does an internal work in your heart. That's the circumcision of the heart made without hands, he said. So it's not you got to figure out now how to be a good Christian. Hey, you got to make sure the pastor doesn't find out you do this or do that. No, none of that. When you're truly controlled by the Holy Spirit, you do as the Holy Spirit directs you and nobody tells you how to change. This change has to be all sourced from God's grace through his Holy Spirit. That's a truly spiritual person. Not an imitator, not a faker, not a legalist, a truly spiritual person. And what we have here that we're going to see are the marks of people who really know God, people who are the real deal or people who are really spiritual people. Number one, they worship God in the spirit. Is this what you think about? You can't set up a system to worship God. It must be by the Spirit. You know, we get up here and we sing songs. That's a way you can worship God. But for some of you, it's fake. And for some of you, it's as real as real could be. What's the difference? The Spirit is the difference. When you worship God in the spirit, it can be horrible music and you are full of joy. In fact, it could be the sound of whips on your back and you can still make a melody in your heart to the Lord. Isn't that crazy? It must be by the spirit because you see the spirit, he's the one who reveals God to us through the word. The Spirit guides us into what an appropriate response is of worship. We don't get to make up how to respond, like, like maybe laughing or barking like dogs. There are churches that do that for worship, and it's stupid, right? Anyone think that's cool? Because you, that's not. It's stupid. And yet people get this, get this idea that they can just choose. Well, I think it's okay to, to worship God like this. No, the Bible gives us instruction in the Spirit. He has given us the Word so that we can know what's an appropriate response. 
It shows us how to respond rightly. So when we come into church, there's a lot of responses that are acceptable. Singing, that's great. Rejoicing, that's an awesome one. Silence. Spirit often leads people to silence in the word. Dancing is okay. Just don't draw attention to yourself in a crazy way. You know, we don't want... Never mind. Um, Weeping. There's a spiritual acceptable response. Meditating. Speaking the word of God. Serving. All of these show that your worship is in spirit because they're spirit-led. The, the Spirit's already told us what God likes, what God thinks, and, and what he thinks is that all those things are great. So if your response, that what you really want, lines up with that list, hey, you can have a confidence that your Spirit's led, that you're a true believer, that you're not a faker. But if your response is, I want to go to worship, I want to go to church, and I want to sing as loud as I can and as annoying as I can so everybody looks at me. You are fake, and you're not real. Or, I want to go, and I just want to be bummed out. That's also not okay, not acceptable. We're called to rejoice in the Lord. Or, I just want to go, and, or I just don't want to go. Or, I just want to go sometimes when I feel like it. Again, these are, that's not how the Holy Spirit leads and directs all the time. I'm not saying you can't miss church, or I'm going to be knocking on your door. Not what's going to happen. But there should be a consistent pattern in your life where we're following and being led by the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to worship God in the Spirit. Second, rejoice in Christ Jesus is another sign that we are true, not fakers, but true followers. The rejoice in, in Christ Jesus means that you boast in Jesus. It's what you brag about. It's who he is that you're excited about. I love when I come to church on Sundays and I hear so often, this is what Jesus has been doing in my life. And I don't always hear, this is what I accomplished this week. That's great. We're on the right track when, when that's the words that we're hearing. That's the attitude of our hearts. When we get together, do we speak about how great Jesus is? That is a mark of real deal believers, true followers, one who really knows the Lord. They can't stop talking about him. The world might find it annoying that all you ever talk about is Jesus. Immature Christians might even call you simplistic or shallow. All he, all he ever talks about is the Lord. I wish he would talk about the real tough stuff I'm going through. But it is a mark of a true follower of God, a relationship that's real. The flesh loves to boast about self, doesn't it? Every time we boast about ourselves, where is that sourced from? Us. Us. The third thing that he says here is that they have no confidence in the flesh. A real deal follower of Jesus has no confidence in the flesh. And this is so contrary to the ways of man. The way the world works is confidence in the flesh they know what they have to work with and they know that that's what's inside them and the real key and the, like spring training camp just started with the broncos i went out to the practice on friday it was fun it was hot 
But what I noticed is that every single one of those guys was giving their absolute best. They were digging down deep, and it was hot, and they were sweaty, except for Von Miller. He's just out there dancing because he already makes enough money and doesn't care if he tries hard during practice. But everyone else is giving their absolute best effort. Because men, our natural way of thinking is we know that we can do that. We know that we can dig down, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, and get it done. That's, however, what we inherited from Adam. That is not what the Bible offers, and that is not what the Bible promotes. Because I might be able to try a little bit harder than Kurt. And if I'm able to try harder than Kurt, and his abilities are just less, that's unfair. If I'm able to succeed in doing God's will or succeed in doing what's right in my life because it depended on my abilities or my skills, that is unfair. And God's way is so much better than our way. God says it depends not on your abilities but on faith. And guess what? Kurt and I can both have faith. Everyone can have faith. Everyone. That's why Christians value mentally handicapped people more than anyone else. Because we see them as a child of God, a person who has every right to have faith. In fact, they have a a benefit to living by faith because they're simple. They don't have all these things that they can depend on. They just trust. And it's almost easier for them to know the Lord. And so we value them and know how important and loved that they are. The world only goes with what they inherited from Adam. But that is not how the kingdom of God grows. Your self-confidence is not the goal or solution in the Bible. And it's not that you can't accomplish impressive things. I think you guys have probably done some impressive things with your human efforts and abilities. But the truth is that they don't matter for eternity. It doesn't matter that you have a degree that you worked really hard for. In eternity, it will not matter. Because Jesus said explicitly, without me, you can do nothing, or nothing that you do apart from me matters. Anything you do that you didn't ask Jesus for help and receive his Holy Spirit is poisoned. It's infected with this disease of sin because our flesh is infected with that disease. And Jesus says, there is freedom, but it's only in me. The only way that you can have freedom from that infection is through faith in me. Walking according to the flesh is depending on what I source. When we do this, when we live in self-confidence, we are living on the same resources as the fallen pagan world, as the church, and we shouldn't do that. Why would we depend on ourselves when that's the same thing the world does? That's getting them in all this trouble. At this point, some of you and some people think, well, this is what weak people say. Only because they're not strong enough to get it done. You know? The Broncos could say, well, everyone else who's trying hard, they're just... They didn't get it done. We got it done. We won the Super Bowl, right? 
I loved saying that. But the Broncos won the Super Bowl. To get this, I just throw that in as much as I can. No, but people look at us sometimes and they say, you guys, church is for weak people. Church is for people who can't depend on themselves. And I say, yes. Only we're just the ones who acknowledge that we're weak. You guys are delusional. You think that you can get it done, but in reality, you're just as weak as we are. But Paul, he foresaw this argument, and so he tells it, he goes into some really interesting stuff right here. Paul, man, he must have been a weak loser to talk about all this, you know, having no confidence in the flesh. He really thought he was that bad. I am a physical and mental specimen who can get things done in my own efforts. I don't need help. That's the attitude of the world. Maybe it's our attitude. Paul, though, is different. Look at what he says in verse 4. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. So talk about someone who had it going on. He says here he had a better chance of doing it himself than any of you. If anyone could have lived by their own resources, it would have been him, he says. His parents weren't crazy. How many of you had crazy parents? (laughs) If the shoe fits, I don't know. His parents weren't crazy. He was circumcised. Like what they were supposed to do on the eighth day when he was a baby, he didn't have control over having crazy parents or not, but he didn't have crazy parents. They were like, no, we're going to do what's right. We're going to do what we need to do if they circumcise him. His focus was laser-like. He didn't get distracted by things that he wasn't supposed to. His obedience wasn't a problem. He always followed the rules, never broke the rules. His passion was there. His abilities were remarkable. His efforts were unquestionable. His understanding of the rules was impeccable. Those are all the descriptions there of Pharisee and all that other stuff. His politics were even right. He voted the right box every whatever. This is who is writing about having no confidence in the flesh, this guy. On the outside, he was blameless. On the inside... He was guilty until he met Jesus. He knew that it was what it was to live on self-sufficiency. He knew that. He lived a huge portion of his life drawing upon the resources that Adam gave him. But it was leading to death. He knew in his heart that he was guilty. He only received a life by total dependence on Jesus. When he met Jesus, and Jesus said, you are guilty, why are you fighting me? Then Paul totally threw himself on Jesus and what Jesus did. His confidence in the flesh was blocking his spiritual growth. Is that happening in your life right now? 
When you wake up in the morning, do you think, all right, I got this? Or do you think, I am so spiritually bankrupt? One of those is a correct attitude to have. And it's the second one. The world wants you to think it's the first one, don't they? So how do I get out of this self-confidence lifestyle that the world has trained me and my own mind wants to live in? How do I get out of that? I want to be free from self-confidence. You want to know how? The answer is getting to know the Lord. Growing and knowing the Lord. Look at verse 7 and 8. Paul says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. The gain that he's talking about, what could Paul gain? He was at the top of his people. He was in the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin the governors of Israel, he was at the top. He was part of that group. He was the ultimate human being at the time. He was the most prestigious guy around. So what is he going to gain? What happens here is he renounces the life he built for himself. He renounces it. And he realizes that his life was keeping him from the Lord. So he turns away and lets go of it. He denies himself. He says no to the self-life. And so he gains something. He gains Jesus. A relationship, a real relationship with Jesus is what we gain when we will turn away from ourself and cling only to the cross. You can gain Jesus. It is not hard. It is one step, one moment away. Turn away from what you have dreamed in your life and say, I want only to know you, Jesus. If you haven't let go of every dream and said no to self and death to self, come and get saved now while I'm talking. You don't have to wait for me to stop. Surrender. It's a heart transaction between you and God. You say, Lord, I'm a sinner, I am guilty, and I turn away from trusting in myself and I trust in you and you alone. So altar call in the middle of church. Just get saved now. He says, Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Now, he is talking in present tense. He was talking in past tense when he talked about letting everything go. Now, he's talking in present tense when he says, I count all things lost. I counted all things lost is what he said before. Now, he says, I count all things lost. Before, it was about justification. That's how he came to know the Lord by faith. That's how he was right with God, was by trusting in Jesus alone. Now he says, it's a daily thing too. It's not just a one-time thing in our life where we trust Jesus. It's a daily thing. It's our sanctification. It's our daily, day-by-day growth in the Lord that is also the same way. 
Surrendering to the Lord and renouncing self-life is how we begin with the Lord, and it's also how we progress with the Lord. Getting to know the Lord is centered in daily rejecting self-sufficiency. Because every day your flesh is going to wake up and be like, I'm ready to go. And every day you're going to be like, get on the cross. I will not depend on you. And then the kids wake up and your flesh is like, I'm back. (laughs) And you have to be like, get back on that cross. It's a minute by minute dying to self because you want to, you want to take it out on them. You want to minister by the hands of flesh. (laughs) And God's like, no, trust the spirit. We have to die to flesh, renounce self-life. And he says here that the surpassing value of knowing Jesus is the best thing. That, That phrase there, the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, you could also translate the surpassing value of knowing Jesus is the best thing. Your flesh only gets in the way of that knowledge because it's a knowledge based on relationship. I don't care if you know Arnold Schwarzenegger because you don't really know him. What knowledge he's going for, what knowledge he's talking about is this experiential, you know him as a friend. And I'm so glad that getting to know my wife is not just about accumulating information. There's so much more, and it's wonderful. I mean, if I just was an encyclopedia of Dana, <laughs> nobody would care. I, I mean, she wouldn't even care. Great, you know everything about me. You're a jerk still. <laughs> there are intimate and real experiences that make knowledge, real knowing someone, Deep and experiential. Getting more info does not equal marriage, does it? We don't stand up there when I'm doing the vows and say, do you promise to learn everything you can about this person? Do you promise to know everything that you can possibly learn? That has nothing to do with anything that we talk about, is it? It's all about relationship. Nobody wants to know the human encyclopedia about God. Getting acquainted with Jesus is the treasure. It's the thing that matters. In John 15, 15, Jesus said, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things I heard from my father, I have made known to you. The purpose of the getting to know of the information is friendship. The relationship is the goal. Jesus values you and he wants to be your friend, your Lord and master and savior and father and healer and leader and everything else too. But it's all relationship focused knowing is what we see here. Paul, he says, Everything that's self-focused, everything that's self-sourced, everything about my self-life keeps me from knowing Jesus. And all I really need is to know Jesus. Jesus says, I have called you friends. I'm, I'm deeply committed to this relationship. 
and you can know me as a friend. Anything that doesn't contribute to this relationship is a waste. Anything. <laughs> now, if you're thinking, well, my kids don't contribute to this. No, you just don't. They do. They show you how weak you are and how selfish you are and how much of a temper you have. So, yes, they are part of this. You can't just say, I'm out of my marriage. I'm out of, ah, oh, gee, he said anything that keeps me from reading my Bible. No, that's not what your life and the circumstances of your life don't prohibit this. See, Jesus said abiding in him is the way to go. Now you abide. A tree abides in its trunk even during storms, right? So many people live life for other things. The only thing that matters is knowing Jesus, though. Not your job or your dreams or your passions or your skills. It's what eternity is all about. In John 17, 3, my dad, one time when I was growing up, he, was, he said, what is eternal life? And I said, living forever? Right? Seems like the right answer. He said, no, actually, I want you to find in the Bible what it says eternal life is and then get back to me. So I had to read my Bible, and when I eventually found it, I was pretty surprised because it's right here in John 17, 3. What is eternal life? He says, and this is eternal life. Oh, I should pay attention. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So what are we going to be doing for all of eternity? Getting to know God. In other words, he's like a video game with unlimited levels and you just always go deeper. He's a story that doesn't end. I don't know, he's a, whatever your hobby is, knitting. He's a knitting thing that doesn't end. <laughs> DLC that never stops. I don't know what your hobbies may be, but... Growing in a relationship with God does not end when we die, but we will continue to grow. If you think about it, that's the only way it could be because God is infinite. So how could you ever get to know everything about God, even when you're glorified? You won't. We have to keep growing. And the cool thing is it never gets boring. We will not just be up in heaven playing harps. That would be boring. I can see why people have that image of heaven. They're like, I'm going to smoke weed because that's dumb. But when you know what the true relationship with God is, there is nothing better, and that's your motivation to live a holy life. It's because I want to know him now. Nothing else matters to me except my relationship with him. And I want to be right with him. So, Spurgeon quote, Spurgeon quote. It's time for a Spurgeon quote. Uh, I, I like Spurgeon. He's a great teacher, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read you this quote from him. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of God and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing will so magnify the whole soul of a man as devout, earnest, and continued investigation of the great subject of deity. I could stop there, but I'm going to keep going. It's humbling and expanding. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a death for every grief. 
And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you want to lose your sorrows? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself into the Godhead's deepest sea and be lost in his immensity and you shall come forth from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of grief and sorrow, and so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of Jesus. Whoa. Verse 8, Paul said, I indeed, yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Paul is in love with Jesus. He understands the perfect joy of this relationship. And marriage is a picture, is the picture of our relationship with Jesus. When you meet that special someone, it is a great gain, isn't it? It's pretty exciting. I always go back to that story of Jeremy. Can I tell that story? When my son John, who has autism and has no filter, um, was riding with Jeremy in the car, and he's like, hey, Jeremy, where's your kids? And Jeremy's like, "Uh, I don't have any. Where's your wife? I don't have one. He said, oh, that's sad. (laughs) And look, Jeremy's not sad anymore. And, and Jeremy could tell you all the great gain that happens when he developed a relationship from God and that completed him. It's pretty neat. It's pretty neat. And you're pretty happy too. <laughs> when you meet that special someone, it's great game. And almost all romantic movies involve a story of a guy giving up a great price to gain his bride. Will Turner from Pirates of the Caribbean. Mr. Darcy from Pride and Prejudice, both willing to sacrifice for Kiera Knightley. (laughs) It's true, right? (laughs) Paul says there is more gain from knowing Jesus than from anything else in the world. In fact, Paul calls everything else rubbish. And Greek lesson again, scubalone. Everyone say scubalone. You all just cursed. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No. But, uh, well, kind (laughs) of. The meaning of this word is dung or poo. It's what you flush down the toilet. That is what you just said. Sorry. You're like, I'm never repeating your Greek phrases again. Paul is not really trying to be crude or rude. Um, Some people think that he's actually cussing right here, that he's saying a, a very crass word, Um, and it actually is a a real word for a very gross thing, Um, but Paul would not speak a foul word uh, because he wrote Ephesians 5.4, which says, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. So cursing does not lead to giving thanks. It's foolish and immature, period. We think it stresses the importance of our disgust with the topic, but it really doesn't. It's not fitting a pure child of God, and it's something to surrender in our lives. 
Um, let the fruit of our lips always honor God. But the point remains that he just called everything in the world poop. Everything that distracts from a relationship with Jesus, he called it dung, refuse. It should be flushed down the toilet. This is offensive to anyone who cares about stuff other than Jesus. What are you saying? My life needs to go down the toilet? Paul says, yes. Any other questions? You're not living for Jesus? Yes. Your life goes down the toilet. Paul is saying that, that they're like, anyone who's really invested in things other than Jesus are like kiddos playing with their mess in a crib. Anyone have that happen? That is a bad day. This is the view that Paul has about worldly, self-centered believers. Oh, come on, guys. Really? That stuff stinks. I, mean, I just picture him walking into a crib, and he's just like, come on, guys. I did not want to deal with this today. What in your life distracts you from a relationship with Jesus? Given the context of our scripture, it's actually not enjoying life. It's not your hobbies. It's not even things or possessions per se. Given the context, it, it's us. It's not our possessions. Ecclesiastes actually encourages us to enjoy the life that God has given you. Have fun. But what is the trash? What is the dung? The biggest trash that we get consumed by is self-sufficiency. Self-sourced works. Tell me, where does dung come from? You. You. So now, you have a daily, hopefully, reminder. I was going to let that hang there. You have a daily reminder of how we should think about our self-sourced works. They need to be expelled, voided, rejected, eliminated, evacuated. Jen helped me with all the correct words. She's in nurse training, so... It keeps us from getting to know God the way we should. We must renounce all dependence on the flesh. So how are we supposed to live? And the answer is in relationship with Jesus, a real knowing God, a relationship where he does everything and you do one thing, trust him. Day after day after day, look at verse 9. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. This is the place to be found in him. There are only two locations you can be found in this world, in Adam or in Christ. He says, not in Adam. Don't be found there where sin and condemnation is your experience. Everything is from self. You have no help when you're Adam. You're held to the standard of the law, always falling short of it, separated from God by our very nature. All of us start there. And even daily, 
all of us are tempted to go back there. But by faith, we can be in Christ where nothing is from us. Nothing is sourced from us. His righteousness is given to us through faith. And how perfect was Jesus? And that's what's given to us. And now we have an infinite righteousness already given to us by faith, a righteousness to live on. Not a standard to lay over us, but a real goodness to dwell and well up inside us through our hearts by the working of God and the Holy Spirit. When we start out with God, righteousness is imputed to us. Imputed is a big word, just means given. We stand before him as righteous, innocent of all sin. But when we go on in the Lord, the next day and the next day and the next day, we need to grow in Christ and his righteousness is then imparted righteousness. It's, it's given daily, imparted to us. And that's why it says the just shall live by faith. Not only are they born by faith, but they live by faith. It's all accessed the same way. The righteousness of Jesus is always by faith. You have to get up, wake up in the morning and you have to say, Jesus, I need you. And I believe that you will come to me, that you will give me righteousness. And when you can trust the Lord in that way, it comes. Righteousness happens. This gets us to the heart of life. We need this to be real. A life of faith, it's the only thing that matters. Your circumstances are not what life is about. And some of you have some tough circumstances. You could have been born in Madagascar in 500 BC and life would still be about the exact same thing. Faith in God's word, faith in God's son. Knowing God is the point of life. So get to know him. How, you ask. I'm so glad you asked. Wait upon him. Wait in his word. Spend time alone with him, with your heart open to the searching of the Holy Spirit. Learn how to engage with him through humility and faith and prayer. If, if someone were asked, how do you get to know your wife? The answer is not to study a book. And it's not to visit her once a month. It's to spend time with her, right? When you first get married, it's easy. As you grow in marriage, you need to commit to spending that time together, to learning about one another. And now we see the, um, I, I'm going to give you a quote from Andrew Murray. Andrew Murray quote. Mm -hmm. I, I like little ditties. That... So he, here's a quote from Andrew Murray. It helps us with this idea of waiting upon God for relationship. He said, now this is the blessedness of waiting upon God, that I confess the impotence of all my thoughts and efforts and set myself still to bow my heart before him in holy silence and to trust him to renew and strengthen his own work in me. 
Remember the difference between knowing with the mind and believing with the heart. Beware of the temptation of leaning upon your own understanding with its clear, strong thoughts. They only help you to know what the heart must get from God. In themselves, there are only images and shadows. Jeremiah 29.13 says, You will seek me and find me when you seek for me with all your heart. So, that's our study for today. Getting to know the Lord. Father, we want to come to you now. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would do a powerful and real work in our heart and in our life. Lord, I pray specifically that your heart would bring conviction of sin. And Lord, if anyone in here feels and knows that they are a sinner, if anyone in here feels unworthy, I thank you for that. It's a gift. And in our weakness and in our unworthiness, in our sin, Christ Jesus died for us. And so anyone in here that is feeling guilty, I, I beg you to cry out to Jesus to save you. For he has demonstrated that he is willing and able to save you. He holds out his hand and says, be free, be forgiven, be made new. It is an offer made to every single one of us today. I don't care if you've known Jesus for many years. If you're living in a state where you have condemnation, where you know you're guilty, you need to come back to him in faith. It's so easy, and only our pride keeps us from him. Only our self-sufficiency, only our thoughts that we don't need this, and we don't need God, and we don't need his grace, and we don't need the forgiveness of Jesus. Those are the only things that keep us from God. So I pray, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would draw everyone in here right now. I pray, Jesus, that there would be a powerful knowledge that we are forgiven and cleansed, that we are given Jesus' righteousness by faith. Lord, we love you. But Lord, you love us way more. You've been so good, and I pray that you'd help us to wait upon you this week, even the rest of this day. Lord, that we would truly draw near with our whole heart, not holding back some self-sufficient, self-dependent parts, but totally saying we need you in every part of our life. 